want to encourage those who are part of the bridge to uh, feel free to join Jeremy as they head out and dig into this same passage of God's Word that we're looking at this morning. The passage that we are looking at is Matthew chapter 28, the very end of this passage that you heard sung by our kids. It's often given the heading in many of our scriptural translations and versions as the Great Commission. So we want to talk about this passage a little bit. For me, it begins with a story about my very first girlfriend. Her name was, thank you, her name was Elizabeth. I called her Bittis. Because I was only about three years old and I couldn't say the word Elizabeth. It went from great interest to a sympathetic awe to... Bittis lived next door. My dad, uh, because of his work, um, moved us from where I was born in Springfield, Ohio, to a small suburb outside of Cincinnati called Finneytown. And in this home right next door was a girl who was my same age, Elizabeth, and her family. I, because I was so young, remember very little. But Bittis was the one who I would play with in our driveway or in her garage or in the backyard. And as the years passed and we moved away, we landed eventually in Detroit. And probably about 23 years later, my mother receives a phone call. She receives a phone call from Bittis' mother. My mom, when they had moved to Finneytown, was just a person in the neighborhood. She introduced herself to the neighbors, tried to be neighborly, invited several of the ladies in the neighborhood into her home for something to eat, to talk, and periodically she was invited into the homes of others in her neighborhood. 23 years later, phone call coming from Elizabeth's mother that said, Nona, it's my mother's name, I just wanted to call to let you know that 20-some years ago, the seeds you planted were not lost, they've taken root. I've given my life to Christ, and I just wanted to call to let you know. I don't know the conversations that my mom had. I don't know what conversations around the kitchen table were like. I know my mom, and I am guessing that she was simply living her life. And in the midst of living her life, life brought about conversations. And those conversations brought about my mom's simply saying where she got her joy, what the foundation was of her living. 
and this woman who had not been in contact with my mom for two decades wanted to let her know that those seeds planted had resulted in, sure, many other things that had taken place in her life, but a faith in Christ that she wanted to share with my mom. It, to me, is what come back, comes, brings me back to this passage in Matthew chapter 28. The passage that says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It is a passage that for me has left me feeling pretty guilty sometimes. That somehow I have not lived into the calling of this great commission. That I have not been bold enough or strong enough, aggressive enough in my faith, living in a way that would call people into the kinds of conversations or the kinds of decisions that would result in what I thought was the natural consequence of what this passage implies. I'd like to dig deeper into this passage. Because my goal this morning is not to draw us all into a morning of guilt-ridden angst, but is instead to open up God's Word and simply ask, what does it mean to you and to me today? What does the Great Commission look like when a seed that's planted has a harvest that's 23 years later? What does it mean when we recognize this is God's work, not my work? My simple call is to obedience. The results are in God's hands. The building of the kingdom is God's journey. I get invited in to simply be obedient in the process and to somehow partner as God opens up to me opportunities to simply be a reflection of what God has already been doing all around me in front of me, behind me, and beside me. So, this passage, a couple of things jump out at me. One is that it says, make disciples. There are a lot of action verbs that are in this short passage of Scripture. The verb go, whatever that means, Philippines team, you're going, it's fantastic. There is the verb baptize. There's the verb teach. There's the verb make disciples or disciple. Of all of the verbs that are in this particular passage, there's only one that has a unique construction in the Greek language that implies kind of a a mandate, an admonition, maybe even an imperative in all of those. And that one is disciple. It really is the crux of this passage. So what does it mean to disciple or to be discipled? Jesus, here in this passage, speaks to those who have gathered on this mountain in Galilee, this place where He's called them to meet Him, and is saying, simply pass on what I've passed 
onto you. What you've learned from how I live, go live. And the passage opens up for those who are followers of Christ where that's supposed to take place. And it's an interesting contrast to the rest of this gospel that Matthew has written. Matthew, over and over again in this gospel, makes reference to Jesus' ministry and the work of the disciples taking place among the Hebrew people. It's been very clear in this gospel that Jesus' ministry was not to go to the Gentile world. And in this line it says, make disciples of all nations. And the phrase there in the Greek-speaking Jewish vernacular is a phrase that was typically used to say, and to all the Gentiles. What we have translated all the nations, those who would be part of the chosen people, Greek-speaking individuals, would hear that as, go to all the Gentiles and let them know the good news. Jesus has fulfilled the calling to present the good news first to those who were God's chosen people. And now there is this openness that says, and the reason for this is so that all might hear the good news. Just like it was proclaimed to Abraham, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. This now is the open door that says, and now we let that happen. Go and convey what I've conveyed to you to all people. This is for everyone. It also says in this passage, Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's an interesting phrase, heaven and earth. It's kind of a literary device. It makes reference to parts of a whole. So you're describing something that is actually a whole, but you describe some of the component parts of that. So if I were to describe um, um, the earth as the land and sea, I'm not implying that those two things somehow separate themselves. I am describing the whole earth as two of its component parts, the land and the sea. Or if I would refer to a person as body and soul, I'm not saying that those two things are separated. They are two parts of the one entity, that person. That same literary device is used here in regard to heaven and earth. There is a description of God's creation described as heaven and earth. Intended to be one unity. But in scriptures, we find by Genesis chapter 4 that there has been this horrible breach between heaven and earth. This separation has taken place. This chasm as a result of what we have done that somehow creates an expanse that we find it difficult to bridge. The difference between heaven and earth. But Jesus comes. And through Jesus' death and resurrection there is a bridge that has been built that spans that chasm that heaven and earth might once again 
somehow connect and be healed. We pray it nearly every week. The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. It is not only our prayer, but it is our belief that that is what Christ does. And here in this closing passage of Matthew, we have Jesus saying, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And in that authority, there is this bridge that's built. This healing that takes place that allows the earth and heaven to reconnect in a way that has not yet been fulfilled, but is in the process of being fulfilled as Jesus allows us to participate with Christ in bringing about heaven to earth. An amazing promise. Now, I want to give a little bit larger context for Matthew's Gospel here. You know I love to do that. And we're at the very end of this Gospel. I would like at least to expand the view a little bit further to the whole chapter. The beginning of this chapter, we have the two Marys that go to the tomb. The two Marys go to the tomb and there's an earthquake that happens and in the midst of the earthquake that happens, the angel rolls away the stone of the grave where Jesus has been laid and sits there. And the two ladies show up and they are a bit panicked, shaken, along with the earthquake that took place. And the angel calms them, comforts them, and instructs them where to go. And as they leave, they meet with Jesus. And they're taken back by the fact that Jesus has appeared to them. I love the mixture of emotions that they have. Because it says them in verse 7 that they are to go quickly, tell this to the disciples, he has risen from the dead. Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. What an interesting combination. Fear and joy in the same person. I don't know if you have mixed emotions like that sometimes. I certainly do. I'd like to take you to where the disciples meet Jesus and see another interesting mix of emotions. The very end says, as we lead into this great commission, verse 17, when they saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him, and some doubted. Worship and doubt. In the same phrase, among the same group. In fact... The word some is not even in the original language. The sentence construction could allow it for to be in there, but it's not necessary to be in there. It's possible that the translation is, and they worshipped and doubted. What an interesting mix. Well, let's go back just a little bit to the beginning of this passage. We've got the storyline of the women who come, verses 1 through 10. It tells all that takes place, that they see Jesus. And then we go to verses 11 through 15. And at 11 through 15, we have the alternate story that has been communicated. Matthew gives it to us. Here's the alternate story that was constructed. The guards fell asleep in the middle of the night. The disciples came in while the guards were asleep. They rolled away the stone and stole the body of Jesus. And they've passed on the rumor that Jesus is raised from the dead. 
We know that it was an issue at the time Matthew wrote this gospel because Matthew says, and that's the story that's still circulated among many, even today. It was a rather popular storyline. Matthew is telling a story that he is trying to convey saying, this is what I saw. This is what we have experienced. Here are the people who saw Jesus. But I want you to know, I know. You've seen another story. You've heard another story. Here's the rumor that's being told, and here's the background to it. But Matthew doesn't shy away from the fact that among the disciples, there was doubt. Matthew doesn't tell the story, but another gospel writer tells the story of Thomas, who came to be known as the doubter. It's almost as if Matthew wants to say, okay, let's make it clear, Matthew's not the only one who's doubting here. There are a lot of us who doubt. Because we've heard a lot of the other storylines. But I want you to know, here's what we've seen. Here's our eyewitness. Jesus doesn't exclude doubt either. There's no explanation. Jesus doesn't divide the crowd and say, okay, for all of those of you who have finally been convinced, here's what I'm telling you to do. No. He looks at the whole crowd. Faith and doubt, two amazing partners that lead us further down the pathway of growth and learning. And he says, I want you to disciple. I want you to have the same kind of questions, dialogue, answers offered that I had with you. I want you to engage with others. And even more than that, I want you to live this out. Even in the midst of every once in a while, fluttering back and forth, about those things that you may be uncertain. So, I confess, I'm a doubter. I am among those. I have become a skeptic of many things. And some of that arises out of my journey, my experience. You've had some experiences as well that have made you more cautious. I think I sometimes frustrate people because I sometimes stall. I stall because I don't yet have enough information. I want to hear a little bit more. I know that I need to caution myself and say, don't let it get you so stuck that you never move. I've told you this before. My great high school Sunday school teacher that talked about the guidance of the Holy Spirit being like the rudder of a ship. It can move you to the left or to the right. But it doesn't do anything if the boat's not moving. Sometimes you need to move forward, and I know that, and allow the Holy Spirit to guide. But I'm a doubter. I have radar that goes out when people offer things or say things or pose possibilities. Some of you have heard, though you newcomers haven't, the time as I was trying to work through college where I had an individual who... I was painting to try and work through college. Hired me for $60 to paint a garage, and at the end of doing that job, stiffed me and didn't pay. 
I took him to court. I won the case. I went to the court clerk and asked for my money. I'm not sure what I thought. Like they had a cash register behind the counter that when you won, they just doled out the money. There was no money. She said, you didn't, we don't give you any money. You won the case. Well, the whole reason for the case is for me to get my money. So how do I get my money? And she explained that I may have to find out his bank account and garnish wages and, or something. I, that was my first run-in with the court system. And I was frustrated. And later that week was in a church service. And the speaker was an evangelist by the name of T.W. Willingham. And I remember him speaking and had no idea of what I was in the midst of doing. And somehow in the course of sharing his life's journey, he made reference to sometime in the previous year, loaning somebody $70,000. Seems like an unheard of amount of money, even more so back then. And the person stiffed him. He didn't use the word stiff. He was far more eloquent than that. But he lost his 70 grand. And I remember thinking, wow. Because his response, he was not implying that you shouldn't ever pursue and try and make things that are wrong right. He was just saying in that particular circumstance, he knew he wasn't going to receive his funds back. And he knew he needed to let it go. And forgive I was taken back by that. Uh, it would later on in my life bring crystal clear that story that Jesus told where somebody was forgiven an enormous sum of money and then turned around after having been forgiven that enormous sum and somebody owed him a, owed him a pittance and the person couldn't pay and he threw him in jail. God, Help me let go of the things that I need to let go of and help me to learn from the things that I need to learn. And so I learned. I learned to ask more questions. I learned to listen more carefully. I learned to clarify. It was a great lesson. It raised my level of skepticism. But it also taught me about letting go of the things of which I need to let go and move on. Some are a little more devastating. I have a wonderful little book here. You can't see it from back there. It's prints kind of worn down. It is a gift that was given to my grandfather. His name's written in the top on the right. On July 14, 1929, in Malden, Massachusetts, he was a pastor there in Malden years ago. I never met him. He died before my dad got married, before I was born. This book I found in his library about um, 10, 11 years ago. title of it is the Arco volume, Archaeological Writings of the Sanhedrin and Talmuds of the Jews. Pull it off the shelf. Sounds really boring, but it is actually quite interesting. Nice writing style read through it and was fascinated because it gives an interesting historical account of other literature and writings at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Gives some fascinating insights. Some writings and interactions concerning um, Pilate and the um, trial. 
supposedly taken out of some of the Vatican archives of this gentleman. It was pretty powerful, affected my journey. I shared it with my wife and a few other people. And come to find out, the gentleman who wrote it a little over a century ago, a pastor in Missouri, and the whole thing's a fraud. You can still find it on Amazon. It grows through interesting cycles of being reborn. Recently, there was a televangelist that most of you would know who said, for $50, I'll send you a great book, the Arco volume, for a $50 contribution. I hope he didn't know it was a fraud, because if he knew it was a fraud, that has a lot of other implications that are unsettling. But I remember when that happened, it was incredibly embarrassing. It's also a struggle with my faith. Because here was something that actually I felt like was bolstering my faith, helping me in some areas. And it was like the fabric underneath me ripped, and I fell through and landed on my face. Like good people, at least everything I could tell, seemed like this was a good individual. Early on in my faith journey, I remember a speaker, incredible ability to motivate and inspire. And I listened to him a couple of times, large gatherings, and one of the things that so impressed me was he had so much scripture memorized. And you know I love, I love scripture. And I was taken with how much time he had to have invested in memorizing scripture. Just, he would rattle off the references and, and the verses, and they would support his points and inspiring in a variety of ways. Two years after the last time I heard him speak, he was indicted for fraud and was in jail. And I started questioning everything I heard him say. It led to skepticism and doubt and frustration as I went through the journey of trying to figure out where I put my faith, who I listened to, how I put in appropriate safeguards so that where I was getting my, my teaching, my guidance... How do I know God? How do I know how to discern? I'd be on the mountain because I wanted to follow and believe. And Matthew would probably say, and doubting, wondering, because I don't get how all of those pieces fit together or I've had enough times where I've put my hope in some places and it got pulled and maybe you too. Worst of all is the thought that there have been times when I've shared with somebody else 
and had to go back and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I have somehow undermined your faith, I pray you can forgive me. I pray God can forgive me. Yet Jesus, in the midst of this, looks out over the group and says, So, all of those mixed emotions you have, I'm going to entrust this to you. Disciple. Be on the journey together. In fact, one of the beautiful pieces about that verb, it's got an interesting construct in that it's in second person plural, which to me, I think, implies that this is not intended to be a solo adventure. It's very clearly intended to be in community. That we journey together, we share this together, we struggle together, we pursue it together. Our faith is built as we engage in this conversation. But I do want to clarify that in this paragraph, it is not a paragraph about belief. Scripture is filled with content that talks about belief and the things on which we build our faith. This passage really is about action. It's about taking that faith and living it out. Because when I ask the question, Lord, how do I discern? I feel like Jesus had given me such wise counsel when he says, you'll know by the fruit that's produced. You'll know by the consequences of how they then live. You'll know when you put your faith into practice what results that'll help you to know that you're on solid ground. Does it produce the fruits of the kingdom? Does it produce peace? Does it produce relief for those who are hurting? Does it produce forgiveness and grace? Does it produce freedom, joy? You'll know by the fruit of how you live if you've put your trust in the right place. I'm entrusting this to you. Go. Disciple. Baptize. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I am inviting you in to that very place where reconciliation takes place. The power of this, though, can easily get lost if we don't listen closely to the very last line of Matthew's gospel. The other three gospel writers, not nearly so um, empowering as this last one. Some of them end on kind of a difficult note. Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you.
There's not some distant thing that's taken place. Some hope that some time in the future Christ will return. And though it's taken so much longer than we thought it was going to take, someday soon it will happen. We really believe that. The gospel writer here is saying, Jesus declares, I am with you now. This is God's work. Through Christ, we get to participate and watch the kingdom be built by Jesus as we live in obedience and allow the fruit of an examined life to produce the kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. We're going to spend a little time singing. I hope that in the next couple of songs you'll catch a glimpse of Christ with you on the mountaintop entrusting to you God's work. Father in heaven, what an invitation to meet you on the mountain this morning. We are praying that this might be such a place. And here we are, skeptics, many of us, doubters, maybe most of us, I don't know, Lord, Followers, yep, trying. <laughs> Lord, there are many reasons for us to be skeptics. There's a lot out there that would bring about a thought of doubt. Pieces that don't seem to fit places where it doesn't seem like the kingdom has arrived in any fashion at all. But you've promised to be with us and have invited us to this great work of discipling together, to engaging with one another, certainly having the conversations, asking the questions, exploring together your word, your truth, drawing on our history and looking toward our future. You've also called us to action, Lord. Help us to live out what we believe and see what happens. When the fruit's not good, Lord, help us to be ready to shift and listen some more. Journey together in faith and then live it out. Thank you for the invitation to join you on the mountain and to hear your challenge to us. For what you have commissioned us to do, you have equipped us to do. Help us to rest in that good news. Oh Lord, we praise your name this morning and lift up our voices. Amen. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and earth, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father, Lord. Use us to make that happen. You give life, you are love. 
You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord. Let's stand together, church. Sing of His love. It's Your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. So we 